Funding for Think comes from SMU Master of Liberal Studies. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. How just is the death penalty as applied in Texas cases? A report issued this month by the American Bar Association finds that the state has made some improvements to reduce the risk of wrongful conviction, but that Texas appears, quote, out of step with better criminal justice and law enforcement practices used for capital cases in other states. Jennifer Lauren is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law, and she served as chair of the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Team, which prepared the 500-page report, Evaluating Fairness and Accuracy in State Death Penalty Systems, the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Report. She joins us from the studios of KUT in Austin. Jennifer, welcome to Think. Thanks so much for having me. So this report does not argue for or against the death penalty in and of itself. Can you explain then the purpose of doing such a comprehensive study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the the purpose really is at the end of the day twofold. One is to to bring to light, um, to to shine a light on, to educate the public, to educate criminal justice stakeholders, to educate lawmakers about how, in fact our system of capital punishment functions. And, you know, in doing that, the report really examined absolutely every stage of a a capital case from investigation through to um, the the sort of penultimate stage before execution of sentence, which would be um, the the clemency proceedings. And um, in, in so doing, the report was guided by a series of um, benchmarks that the American Bar Association actually passed about a decade ago through its organization. Benchmarks that um, relate to practices, again, at each stage um, of the system of administering capital punishment um, that concern uh, just about every actor in the system, from police to prosecutors, judges to juries, um, defense counsel, lawmakers. Um, And the idea was to really see what actually happens to a capital case um, at each and every stage. So a hugely important part of the of the of the project here was educative. There has not been um, this kind of comprehensive study of death penalty practices in the state um, to our knowledge to date. But, but there is a second component here because we were not just seeking to describe practices at each and every stage of a capital case, but also to to assess the extent to which Texas's administration of the death penalty does or does not comport um, with these with the, the the benchmarks that the ABA had that the ABA has developed benchmarks that really do reflect um, sort of fundamental notions of of fairness that reflect um, in some instances um, what have come to be understood as as best practices, particularly in law enforcement, that in some instances are in fact reflective of or necessary to comply with constitutional mandates from the United States Supreme Court. So there's a second component as, as well, which is to sort of put before, again, the public criminal justice stakeholders, lawmakers, evidence of ways in which um, Texas uh, does and in many cases, unfortunately, does not meet um, some fundamental benchmarks for fairness in our administration of the death penalty. 
Importantly here, we should say that there was no litmus test. The people selected for the team were not required to have a position either for or against the death penalty. But can you talk a little bit about, um, give us some background on how the team was selected and how everybody worked together to put this report together? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the project is um, the the most recent of now almost a dozen, actually, um, state level reviews that have been done sort of at the um, at the level of a, a partnership between um, a subcommittee of, of the American Bar Association and state level teams. So what happened um, now, even a little bit more than two years ago, was that a, a team uh, of Texas um, legal professionals, legal actors, legal scholars um, that included, you know, myself, I'm a a, a former litigator and and now a a law school professor. There were there's a former federal prosecutor on the team, um, a recently retired federal judge, a former member of the Texas Supreme Court, um, a former governor, um, an individual who uh, was for a long time involved in uh, the the Texas uh, uh, in the administration of criminal justice in in Texas, um, and so we really spanned as a team a broad range of interests, a broad um, set of experiences. Some of us, some of us with direct experiences concerning the death penalty. For example, our former federal prosecutor had, of, of course, tried capital cases. Um, the former governor, who was a member of the team, had, in fact, um, not only been a practicing attorney, but also had, of course, made clemency decisions. So um, there was a, a range of experiences and sort of prior um, uh, understandings of the Texas death penalty among members of the team. Um, the the process of working on this project was one um, by which, you know, at the beginning, the team made really just one commitment, which was to assess Texas's administration of the death penalty by reference to the ABA benchmarks. Um, and that did guide our review um, in that it, it, to some extent, cabined the, the issues that we examined. So, for example, um, the scope of the project did not include, for example, conditions of confinement on death row or, or manner of execution, which, of course, is it's a topic of, of, of interest to some. Um, we followed the stages of the process that um, the, the ABA, um, in going through its governance process and adopting these benchmarks, had already sort of seen fit to, to e- examine um, from the standpoint of fairness. But also importantly, and you already you already mentioned this. You know, we as a team at the very outset, you know, not only came into this um, based just entirely on our sort of diversity of experience with the law and the criminal justice system in Texas and not by reference to um, any commitment, public or private, with regard to the propriety of the death penalty. As a matter of fact, I have no idea, actually, hmm. uh, what the, the personal views are of, of members of, uh, of the team. It was just not part of the equation. But we also, as a group, when we embarked on this project, really decided that um, the most important um, uh, effect of this endeavor would be um, the, the, the two sort of related functions that I already discussed, which is to really meaningfully educate um, the public and, and key stakeholders and also to try to make recommendations that might improve 
what happens in Texas. And in setting those priorities, we made a, a simultaneous commitment that、um, we were not, in the course of this study, going to sort of pass judgment on whether or not Texas should、um, continue to have the death penalty. We sort of took that question off the table、um, because, at the end of the day, we felt that the priority really needed to be placed on us being able to to reach、um, all. Actors and all members of the public, who of course themselves have a diversity of views on the, on that question, and and that it might impede our capacity to really make sort of meaningful um, uh, uh, recommendations that might be taken seriously、um, by those members of the of the public as well as、um, lawmakers and stakeholders. So let's get down to brass tacks here. If these ABA benchmarks have been applied to similar studies in about a dozen states, as you mentioned earlier,、um, where does Texas fall on like a one to ten or one to twelve scale in terms of Um, how well it is、um, carrying out a fair and accurate、uh, execution of the death penalty. Well, you know the the, the report doesn't quite.、Um Benchmark Texas against other states, right? So, so we don't make that finding,、um, but but we do make we we do make a series of findings that、um, do point to one significant concern in Texas's administration of the death penalty being that there are a number of ways. In which Texas is、um, an, an outlier in its practices. Now,、um, I, I think it, it bears emphasis at the outset when we start talking about the specifics of of our findings.、Um, you know, one that this report was, among other things, focused on present practices. Okay, so、um, certainly w- one could have a conversation about sort of the history of the administration of the death penalty in in Texas or in in many other states, and of course the the sort of Legal rules that have governed that have shifted dramatically, shifted dramatically over time.、Um, our focus was on what Texas is doing now and going forward. Now, in in taking that focus, another thing that's important to say at the outset is that、um, there are some ways in which Texas has.、Um, Both sort of made improvements to its、um, administration of, of criminal justice generally, and in some respects with regard to the death penalty in particular.、Um, and there are even some ways in which Texas has adopted practices or institutions that reflect, you know, better or best practices nationally. And in some instances, are、um, you know, represent kind of the leading edge of reform. Some examples that the report. Um, identifies um,、uh, include、um, you know legislation that was、um, passed in, in the recent legislative sessions、uh, concerning reform of、um, eyewitness identification procedures and the way those are done by police. We think that's a very important. Reform broadly recognized as、uh, a, a best practice in law enforcement that has a, a great deal of bearing on outcomes in, in capital cases, and and Texas was was right minded in going in that direction.、Um, another example of way of a way in which Texas has、um, taken some steps to enhance the fairness of administration of the death penalty has been、uh, the the development of some. Um, public defender offices、um, and and other mechanisms of sort of institutionalized state-funded、um, defense systems、um, in both trial level and and post-conviction capital defense, and that's that's been a a, a positive result we think in the state. On the other hand,、um, there are a number of ways in which, again, by reference to the benchmarks themselves.、Um, 
or to your question by reference to what occurs in other states that Texas practices are um, one sort of outlier practices uh, represent a, a minority or even a sole approach nationally and and um, uh, aren't uh, aren't minority approaches that, that we should be proud of frankly um, Two, and, and relatedly, there are a number of ways in which Texas's um, uh, administration of the death penalty uh, does not reflect best understandings of science and its use in the criminal justice system. And that's of, of considerable concern to the team. Um, and, and then third, and this goes back really to the, the sort of primary um, you know, mission of the report, the team was very concerned that there are a number of ways in which Texas's administration of the death penalty really lack the level of transparency that we think is important for the public to have confidence in the fairness of the administration of the system. So you recommend, and by the way, when I say you in this hour, I want our listeners to understand that I'm speaking about the entire panel when I use that uh, that, that word. Um, but the, the report recommends that, that all interrogations for capital cases be recorded via video or at least audio. Why is that so important, assuming that detectives are uh, can be trusted to act honorably in those interrogations? Well, that's it's a great way to frame the question because it, it, it goes not only to, to the question of why it's important, but also why we think um, it's it's a, a, a viable and, and extremely doable recommendation. Indeed, one that has been adopted by law enforcement agencies in a number of states across the country. You know, first of all, um, experience has shown, including um, in a, a number of Texas exonerations, that confessions are... Um, less reliable than uh, we might traditionally have thought. That, in fact, there are, and the social science research has established this, a number of reasons why, particularly um, certain sort of more vulnerable populations, young people, um, people with um, certain types of intellectual disability, um, people who find themselves in uh, just extremely vulnerable circumstances, might be moved to confess falsely. The importance of recording um, is in large part to permit the jury, judges, to better assess the circumstances of interrogation so that we can have more confidence in the reliability of that evidence at trial. Jennifer Lauren, I have to jump in here to take a break. My guest is Jennifer Lauren, chair of the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Team and professor of law at UT. Uh, We'll resume the conversation in about two minutes. You can join us at 800-933-5372. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program, accepting applications for this January to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu MLS. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with UT Law Professor Jennifer Lauren, who is chair of the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Team. That team has just put out a report entitled Evaluating Fairness and Accuracy in State Death Penalty Systems, the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Report. You can find a copy of it online. If you'd like to join the conversation, call in to 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think 
at KERA.org. And Jennifer, before the break, you were talking about um, the need to uh, record interrogations for capital cases because there are, uh, I guess, times in which uh, someone who is innocent might, in fact, be persuaded to falsely confess. That's right. And and what the advantage of recording is that it permits a, a, a full and objective record of what actually occurred in the course of the interrogation. Um, with a recording, neither the judge nor the jury needs to rely on a sort of contest of credibility um, between, say, a, a police officer and an individual on trial concerning precisely what was said, precisely how the uh, the suspect reacted, um, precisely what the circumstances were of, of, of how the conversation happened. Now, the reality of video uh, uh, recording of interrogation across the country is that it is now widely practiced that um, law enforcement organizations that have adopted it, even those who adopted it with initial skepticism about um, whether they um, wanted to be um, burdened by the obligation of recording or to open up their practices right to public viewing, have found um, very, very quickly, one, this is particularly given modern technology, not a particularly burdensome requirement. Right? We all, frankly, have the ability to, to effectuate this with, with, with modern smartphones. Right. But secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, for thinking about the viability of this sort of reform in Texas, um, law enforcement organizations have really found that in the long run, this is something that that is a, a, a positive, a positive thing for their officers, that that by and large, um, it what it does is reveal to juries and to judges that uh, officers are using um, the kinds of interrogation practices that um, individuals can be confident in. Um, of course, in instances where um, either through uh, through you know negligence or um, just un, you know unwitting behavior, or in the outlier example, right, some more um, I- intentional misconduct, the advantage of the recording is that it does create a record to identify that and and really sort out. Uh, reliable from from unreliable confessions. What kinds of policies do we need statewide in this era where DNA evidence is so important? How should we handle biological evidence, and how should we preserve it? Um, well, it's it's of course true and and widely understood now that that DNA um, has kind of upended our. Um, past presumptions about the finality of convictions in cases. Um, Of course, in in Texas, we have the um, rather tragic distinction of um, having a a number of DNA exonerations from death row, um, as well as dozens more uh, from individuals who were convicted of crimes and not sentenced to death. so we have seen the lessons uh, of, of, of DNA here in Texas. There are two critical um, conditions, uh, actually three critical, critical conditions that make um, it possible for DNA to reveal more accurate out- outcomes in a case down the road. The first is the collection and preservation of biological evidence. Um, with if one does not hang on to the evidence in a case, it can't be tested later. 
Um, this is a, a lesson that in Texas is, is really actually um, very vividly illustrated in Dallas. Um, Dallas, of course, um, as, as many know, has had the vast majority of DNA exonerations in the state of Texas over the last couple of decades. Um, the, the best explanation for why that's so is frankly not that Dallas has been the site of more wrongful convictions, but rather, as it turns out, Dallas is an area where the evidence is in fact available to test. And the reason for that is because the private DNA laboratory that's served Dallas County for many, many years, uh, the Southwest Institute of Forensic Science, preserved uh, the biological evidence in cases um, where other laboratories in the state, frankly, did not. So the availability of evidence to test is critical. The second critical condition um, is the, the willingness, frankly, of uh, the, the state, um, of, of prosecutors in particular, to entertain the possibility of um, going forward with testing. That's a circumstance that you did see in Dallas uh, with the development of, a, of a, a, a unit within the prosecutor's office that actually was devoted to um, bringing forward cases that, that, that uh, were appropriate for DNA testing. Um, some other offices around the state of Texas and nationally have developed internal units that do um, have a, an affirmative attitude toward wanting to um, uh, re-examine cases through DNA testing. But in other instances, uh, you see more resistance um, from prosecutors to the possibility of re-examining evidence through DNA testing. And where, where that is true by virtue of, of, of law or, or, or culture, then the sheer availability of evidence doesn't help. The third condition that's necessary is for courts to be amenable to hearing evidence of, of, of newly discovered evidence of, of innocence through DNA testing. Um, and again, that's something that uh, Texas has seen some improvements in um, over the, the recent years, but the report sees um, a significant distance to go. There are three critical recommendations that the report makes with regard to this question of whether we are doing enough to make sure that DNA evidence is available to correct error in, in capital cases. The first is the recommendation that all biological evidence be preserved in all violent felony cases until the termination of um, the, the sentence in the case or the death of the, of the, of, of the defendant. Um, the, the reason that this is so critical is because just preserving evidence in capital cases, which Texas law now does, does not permit the opportunity for defendants to fully um, have available to them claims that they may have been innocent in another offense that actually serves the basis for their death sentence. Um, and so that's a really critical reform um, that, that Texas should undertake. The second recommendation that we make is indeed that um, that prosecutors' offices um, adopt an attitude toward uh, DNA retesting that 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 reflects an openness to the possibility of correcting error um, rather than a resistance to it. And again, um, you know, we recommend that this be that this be formalized. That internal units within an office be developed, really devoted to identifying cases and and supporting um, the possibility of of retesting DNA evidence um, in cases rather than um, sort of litigating against that possibility when defendants seek it. And the third recommendation that the report makes that's, that's, that's critical here is that Texas law be changed to open up the possibility for uh, making a, a legal claim of, of a, a right to, 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 to the retesting of, of DNA evidence. Right now, 
Texas law um, is is limited in the circumstances under which uh, a defendant can actually go into court and seek retesting. For example, um, Texas law does not permit a defendant to argue for retesting of DNA evidence that was tested once on the grounds that there may have been error in that testing. Um, instead, a defendant has to show that, in fact, available testing wasn't done. One thing we know about DNA is that not only does it have enormous po- power to uh, establish the, the, the innocence or, in some cases, the guilt of an individual, but also that, in fact, the process of DNA testing is fallible, that errors occur. Errors have occurred in Texas. Errors have occurred in labs across the country. And that needs to be a, a, a path um, to retesting in, in capital cases, um, certainly. In the trial and sentencing phase, you recommend Texas abandon future dangerousness as a consideration for how convicted capital offenders should be sentenced. Why is that a potential problem or has it been a problem in the past? Well, this um, aspect of Texas's uh, uh, death penalty statute, its sentencing statute, is really a great example of of all three aspects of, of concern that I raised at the beginning of our conversation, that Texas um, really has, has outlier practices, that, that we have practices that are not reflective of best science, and that we have practices that really undermine transparency. Um, the future dangerousness question in Texas is sort of the, the first, in a sense, a sort of gatekeeper question that the jury, who makes the determination as to the appropriateness of the death penalty, the jury has to answer in deciding whether or not a defendant is eligible to receive the death penalty. Now, Texas is virtually alone in the country um, in structuring its capital punishment statute in this manner. There's only one other state that has this formal structure, um, and that state, in fact, does not uh, carry out executions at this point. So Texas is, is virtually alone in this approach. Um, there are a number of problems with this, with this approach in, in the team's view. One is that um, the quality of future dangerousness is is not well defined in the statute. Um, Texas does not have pattern jury instructions in capital cases, another um, uh, sort of deficiency that the team would like to see corrected. Um, and there is significant and disturbing evidence that um, jurors really do not understand um, both what it is they're trying to identify when they um, are looking for future dangerousness in an individual, but also, and perhaps more disturbingly, that inquiring into future dangerousness really leads to juror confusion about their ultimate ability to exercise mercy in a criminal case, in, in, in a capital case, to determine that notwithstanding a finding of future dangerousness, an individual perhaps reflects um, sufficient, uh, what are called mitigating circumstances, sufficient circumstances that uh, cut against the imposition of the death penalty. Now, the Supreme Court has said that one of the absolute hallmarks of, of constitutional fairness in administration of the death penalty is ensuring that jurors understand that they have, in any capital case, full discretion to decide um, on essentially any basis, including their own sort of sense of, of, of moral persuasion, that the death penalty should not be applied as to this individual in this case. 
But, um, you know, studies of, of Texas jurors have, have indicated, for example, that in a, a sample, 70% of jurors thought that if they found future dangerousness in a case, they were required to impose the death penalty. Again, contrary to, to, to what the law is and what the Constitution dictates, that many didn't understand what it meant to consider mitigating evidence after a finding of future dangerousness. So we have this statute that um, really obstructs the ability of the jury to make the determination that we entrust to it. But moreover, the implementation of the future dangerousness question has led to a disturbing degree of um, what could really best be described as as junk science entering the courtroom. Hmm. Um, there have been a, a number of instances of um, expert witnesses testifying as to their prediction concerning someone's future dangerousness. Now, notably, in several of those cases, the individuals who were predicted to be sufficiently future, uh, sufficiently dangerous in the future to warrant the death penalty were in fact later exonerated of their crimes, which is a fact alone that should lead us to be uh, sort of skeptical of the ability to actually look into that crystal ball. Um, but also disturbing has been the extent to which much of that expert testimony has been infected with really other prejudices um, about in, about individuals in the criminal justice system. Um, for example, opinions concerning interaction between um, the race of a defendant and um, the likelihood of their future dangerousness. Those are the kinds of opinions that, frankly, um, we should be concerned about putting a jury, but putting before a jury in any matter in a United States courtroom. But to the extent that those types of opinions are being put before a jury in a capital case, um, we should be more concerned than um, in any other instance. We're talking about the ultimate punishment and we should be looking for ultimate fairness. You recommend that Texas place an outright ban on executing mentally disabled capital offenders and um, ensure that those with mental illness are granted special consideration. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, it goes to actually two two separate sets of recommendations uh, in the report. The first set of recommendations concern those um, individuals with um, what is, is now termed intellectual disability, um, what in the past has been referred to, to individuals who have mental retardation. Now, um, in uh, about a, a decade ago, the Supreme Court actually held that it violates the Constitution to execute individuals who have mental retardation. Um, in the wake of that decision, um, it was not only clear, right, that the Constitution prohibited doing that, but it was also clear, because the Supreme Court said as much, that states needed to figure out how it was that they would go about determining what individuals did in fact have mental retardation and were constitutionally ineligible for execution. Now, the majority of states that continue to conduct executions um, did, in the aftermath of that decision, the Atkins decision, develop um, both uh, an outright formal legal ban on uh, the execution of uh, individuals with mental retardation, but also um, legislative crea legislatively created criteria for determining in a given case whether an individual um, is, is ineligible by virtue of, of, of mental retardation. Texas has not done that. Um, instead, what's happened in Texas has been reliance on 
um, a, a, a test that was developed by the Court of Criminal Appeals that was essentially developed really as a stopgap measure. Um, in the case that announced this test, the Court of Criminal Appeals said, look, uh, since Atkins came down, the legislature has not acted. We need some guidance about what to do. And so here's what we'll do. We hope the legislature will step in to fill a void. The legislature hasn't done that. Um, that wouldn't be such a disturbing matter if not for some aspects of the test developed by the court in that case that um, really represent, uh, in in some instances, precisely the opposite of what any um, sort of clinical understanding of diagnosing mental retardation um, has shown. Um, Texas, the, the death penalty assessment team's call for abandoning those factors really is a call for Texas to abandon what ultimately, what ultimately amounts to um, misunderstanding and prejudice masquerading as science in these cases. Jennifer Lauren is with us. She is chair of the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Team and professor at the UT School of Law. We'll resume our conversation in a moment. You can join us by emailing think at kera.org or calling in to 1-800-933-5372. Funding for THINK comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program, accepting applications for this January to design your own Master of Liberal Studies degree at SMU with concentrations in global studies, creative writing, and organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu MLS. You're listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. The American Bar Association has this month published a report called Evaluating Fairness and Accuracy in State Death Penalty Systems, the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Report. We're speaking with the chair of the team that prepared that report, Jennifer Lauren, who is also professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law. If you'd like to join us, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or send email to think at kera.org. So, Jennifer, you've discussed the um, proposed ban on executing uh, um, capital defendants who have uh, had demonstrated intellectual disability. What about mental illness, um, and and uh, where should the lines be drawn between serious and persistent mental illness as a consideration in capital cases and and milder forms of mental illness? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the place to begin in answering that question is is to say, frankly. Line drawing isn't easy mm-hmm. in this case, um, and uh, that the team recognizes that. I think that the ABA benchmarks reflect that as well. Um, but the team was certainly disturbed that um, it seems that that now Texas really hasn't sought to be very deliberate about where we're drawing that line at all. Um, the issue when it comes to the execution of individuals with mental illness is really the question of whether there's a, a, a gap in the law in um, capturing, on the one hand, um, those who are, uh, it, it, who are uh, legally insane, right, who can meet that very, very high legal standard and therefore um, be subject uh, not only not to, to the death penalty, but also to sort of traditional criminal punishment at all, um, There is, on the other hand, those who are judged simply wholly incompetent, 
um, to stand trial uh, or, 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 or be executed, um, a determination that, again, is an extremely, extremely high legal standard that really looks to whether someone has absolutely any ability to be sort of a, a, aware of, to understand in any way um, what is um, happening to them in their present reality. So again, those two scenarios, the law sort of takes off the table in terms of, of individuals who can be subject to, um, to, to, to the death penalty at all. The team, though, really believes that in the category of mental illness, there are individuals who are kind of falling through the gaps um, in our in, in our criminal justice system who cannot meet, for example, the definition of insanity, perhaps because um, they, although having a mental disease or defect, can't make the very, very high showing that um, they were um, absolutely unable to conform their conduct to to to, to the law um, and and lacked an understanding of what the law was um, or individuals who have some minimal level of awareness about what is happening around them but who nevertheless are so um, beyond the pale in terms of being um, limited in their ability to sort of cognitively sort through both the circumstances of their crime as well as the significance of their punishment, that um, really we cannot in good conscience think that we're identifying the most blameworthy individual or um, that we could possibly be sending any kind of meaningful deterrent message concerning um, the death penalty. You know, one, one case um, that has received some public attention in this matter um, that the, the team really took as um, a, a kind of um, you know, hallmark of our concerns in this regard is the case of, of an individual named Andre Thomas, who um, you know, sits on death row blind um, because he on two occasions has removed um, his eyes uh, in order to sort of do penance for um, what he believes to be his sort of, uh, you know, demon-motivated conduct in his case. Um, he, by most accounts, reflects a complete level of sort of distortion about reality. Um, yet he doesn't meet the definition of competence or insanity. Um, the team really believes that there's uh, an important place for mental illness to be independently assessed in our criminal justice system. Now, where exactly should the line be drawn? You know what? That's a question that the legislature really owes it to the public to deliberate on. Um, we haven't really undertaken that de de deliberation about what sorts of folks who are falling in this sort of gray region really should be categorically taken um, off the table in terms of consideration of capital punishment. We think the line needs to be drawn somewhere and we should consider where. Let's go to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We have Sarah on the line in Dallas. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Chris. Hi, go right ahead, please. Oh, great. Uh, thanks. I um, just want to say how much I love your show, and, and your topic today is, is really interesting, and it's actually reminding me of uh, an episode of another uh, NPR show I enjoy. Uh, this American Life, a while back, did an episode on the um, psychopathy checklist. I can't remember exactly uh, what it was called, but your uh, your your Yes, discussing the future dangerousness aspect of um, of death row just really was interesting. I didn't even know that that was a factor, and I was curious if, if that psychopathy 
uh, checklist was something that uh, that is used, and, and if so, what is your, I guess, opinion on that? I think you're referring to John Ronson's book and uh, work. Uh, the uh, the Psychopath Test is the name of the book that the show was based on. Uh, Jennifer, do you, do you want to respond to that? Sure, I can respond. You know, I I I I can't speak um, in that much detail, actually, as to as to my view on the the full merits of the psychopathy test it, itself. Um, what what I what I can say, and I, I think is sort of most relevant to the connection here, is that um, there's a, a, a distinction <laughs> between um, uh, reliably identifying a particular um, condition. Uh, that in, that in, that an individual currently has, and we could debate whether um, certain such conditions can be reliably identified, or even right within the medical community, whether we should be thinking of them as conditions per se at all. Um, but the future dangerousness question um, and the admission of expert opinion on the future dangerousness question really takes all the concerns that you would have about a, something like the psychopathy test and and elevates them because of the element of prediction. So now what's happening is that, um, you know, what an expert is being called on to do is not only sort of d- describe Right, um, the, the the circumstances of a certain individual's um, sort of mental uh, mental uh, condition, but also what in fact will happen in the future, which you know experience has shown, and frankly science certainly hasn't contradicted, um, is just not a, a reliable um, form of testimony. But you know, um, a further concern with future dangerousness is that um, it is far from the sort of ordinary case where the individuals rendering these sorts of expert opinions have actually even um, conducted uh, a sort of meaningful examination of the defendant themselves. Right? So they might, in fact, be making inferences based on patterns of behavior that were um, evidenced, say, in a course of conduct in a crime, right? Or sort of extrapolating to um, their view of what probable prison conditions might be in the future. Um, so again, uh, I would say the story with regard to future dangerousness expert testimony is is even more concerning um, than with regard to sort of diagnoses per se. You know, the last thing I would say um, that I, I think that the the caller's question gets to is um, the question of you know why do we have this at all, right? And and one point that's that's worth making about this is that when Texas first developed this aspect of its capital sentencing structure. The jury was faced um, with a different set of choices than they are now. Under the former law, um, an individual who did not receive the death penalty in a given case actually had the possibility of being paroled from prison. Um, Under those conditions, one might argue that an inquiry into future dangerousness makes somewhat more sense because then one is talking about a realistic possibility um, or at least a legally theoretical possibility, right, that an individual might actually reenter broader society. That is no longer the case. Under current law, the only alternative to a sentence of death in a capital case that, 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 that goes to the sentencing stage is life without possibility of parole. So under those circumstances, I think we really need to think very, very hard about whether the game is worth the candle here. 
There are a number of recommendations in this report that we won't get to since we only have an hour today. Um, But I'm curious, Jennifer, the report's been out a couple of weeks. Um, Have you had a response thus far from Texas lawmakers? Um, You know, we were pleased, actually, at the um, initial release of the report, which we had at the Texas Capitol, that, um, you know, just by my sort of visual inspection of of the audience, there were a number of folks um, who uh, work either, you know, in the legislature or, um, you know, in the governor's office even, who were in attendance at the the release. uh, the copies of the reports were all snapped up, so we we hope they took them. But you know, we, we've we've been cheered by the interest um, that uh, lawmakers, as well as other stakeholders, have shown at this point in the report. Um, we we haven't been uh, approached in any particular way um, by uh, either legislators uh, considering bills um, or by any other actors sort of wanting to push forward. Um, it's a 500-page report, so I think we'll, we'll give them more than a week to digest it. Uh, but I would also say, you know, one of the really important um, things to understand about the recommendations in the report is that Although we do call for a number of legislatively enacted reforms, there are also a number of ways in which actors outside the legislature can take it upon themselves to um, to change their practices um, in ways that would comport with the report's recommendations and would really advance the ball in terms of fairness. So, for example, the report does call um, on prosecutors' offices to, in a number of respects, consider um, internal policies that would do a better job of screening cases to sort of fairly and uh, in a transparent manner um, identify what the appropriate criteria are for charging um, a capital case and seeking the death penalty. Um, the report um, talks to, to a, a, a very, very, to, to a great extent about the state of indigent defense services in Texas. And while there are some legislative solutions that the report calls for, there are actually a number of non-legislative actors, including sort of administrative, judicial administrative regions that have significant discretion over the standards that govern the performance of defense counsel in the state, um, significant discretion over even the funding of defense counsel in the state. And there are actions that can be taken, again, um, at their own uh, instance by those non-legislative bodies that could really uh, be a very significantly positive effect um, on the administration of the death penalty in Texas. So, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping that this will be broadly read um, and that, uh, you know, there will be sort of a, a array of responses from within the legislature and outside of it. We have just over a little over a minute left, but if Texas cannot or will not ameliorate the most significant concerns um, uh, written in this report, uh, would the ABA ever take the position that the death penalty (coughs) should be, if not abolished, um, indefinitely suspended? Well, you know, the the narrow answer to the question as posed is is no, I, I don't think that the ABA itself would take that position. Um, would the team, um, you know, I, I think the answer is no. Uh, the team made a commitment that what we wanted to do was put the facts before the public, before lawmakers, before stakeholders in the criminal justice system. We recognize that the question of ultimately whether we think we can 
um, fairly administer the death penalty um, at a cost, and I mean a financial cost as well as a human cost that we as a state can bear, is a complex question um, that really requires a broader airing of views than any um, eight-person team could possibly accomplish in the course of two years. That's a question that calls for broader deliberation. Um, it's a very serious question, and we hope very much that um, the legislature, that others uh, involved in the criminal justice system, that the public, who ultimately has ownership over our system, takes very seriously that that is the challenge put to us. In Should other words, is, is again, this process um, worth the cost that it takes, um, human and financial, to do it fairly? Jennifer Lauren is professor at UT School of Law and chair of the Texas Capital Punishment Assessment Team. You can read the American Bar Association's report online. Jennifer joined us from the studios of KUT in Austin. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. Oh, thanks so much. It was a great pleasure for me, Chris. Today's show was engineered by Shelley Canavy. Our podcast is produced by Christine McConnell. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day. 